Let's go ahead and uh, transition into Revelation. And, and I was thinking about this, this reading of, of Revelation. Um, I, I've read through a number of times now, um, about four times in the last couple of weeks. And not enough, really. I, I want to keep reading at least a couple more times a week during this whole series um, so that I can get a scope of the whole book. And uh, one of the things that strikes me about Revelation, and, and as I'm reading this book, is that I read it and I feel like it's this far-off, fanciful, crazy sort of thing that's like not really something that I've ever experienced. Um, I don't know if you have experienced uh, what happens in Revelation in your own personal life, but I mostly doubt it, uh, like, like I haven't. Um, and so I read these things, and at the same time I, I look at that and I, and I compare my life to it, <laughs> and I think, like... My life and Revelation don't seem to match up. And, and I think about my life in, in, in preparing for, for Revelation. And, and I was thinking about how, how so often in my life, like we talked about last week, I get stuck in this sort of rut, this place where my life is just sort of accidental. Like, instead of living my life on purpose and with intention, life is just sort of happening to me. Yeah, I don't know if you're like this, but I, ever feel, I feel like sometimes I get in the, uh, in the same old rut. The same old rut. You know, you, you go to work in the same old car, driving down that same old road, uh, stopping in that same old gas station for that same old cup of coffee, uh, so that you can go to that same old job with the same old boss doing the same old thing, uh, only to go home that evening um, to the same old house, It, get, it gets worse. <laughs> Eating the same old food, reading the same old new paper, watching the same old shows, sleeping in bed with the same old... Uh, <laughs> you knew that was coming, right? Only to get up the next morning and, and do that same old thing again. I mean, I, I read amazing stuff in books like Acts and like Revelation, and I think... <laughs> Lord, I mean, like, open my eyes to that. Like we get in that same old place where we, we sort of feel removed, you know, kind of like, Lord, where, where is that supposed to happen? I, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing what you're showing me there. And, and when life gets like that, this sort of same old humdrum, Existence, where the, where the goal sort of becomes simply to get through another day. <laughs> like we said last week, the mission of God. The mission of God is what is pushed to the margins of our lives. Life sort of becomes an accident instead of something lived on purpose. I, I meant to put this next quote I'm going to tell you in their study notes, but I forgot. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Um, it's a good little quote that I found. It says, we have been lulled to sleep. We have been lulled to sleep by the ordinariness of our lives. We have been lulled to sleep by the ordinariness of our lives. It's that same old thing, you know, day in and day out, same old thing. Lulls us to sleep. 
So, so I ask myself the question as I'm reading things like Revelation, what would it take to live on purpose for my life, for your life? What would it take for you to live with intentionality? As if God's mission is the very heart and center of what you do, what you say, how you work, how you parent, how you spend your money, all of those things. What would it take for God's mission to be the center of your life, so that, so that you would live your life on purpose instead of life just sort of happening to you. As if, as if the world around us is the main influence on our lives. How do we, how do we lift up our eyes beyond what we perceive as a same old life with little excitement? You know, that's kind of how we end up thinking about it. How do we get out of the pattern of the accidental life? that the evil one has tempted us to live. The book of Revelation answers those questions with two words. With two words that are the main point of today's sermon and that are smack dab in the middle of the first few verses of Revelation. Those two words are, read me. That's what Revelation says. The answer to the question of how you, how you sort of lift your eyes off of yourself and your same old humdrum existence that doesn't seem to be very exciting, the way we do that is we get into the Word. The way we do that is we, we, we lift up our eyes from ourselves and we get a revelation like John did that is of Jesus Christ. Very plainly and very simply, Revelation 1, 3, if you're turned there, it gives us this promise. It says this very thing, Revelation 1, 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And then it says, for the time is near. Revelation 1, 3 gives us this promise. It says, read me, Revelation speaking, read me, get a revelation of Jesus Christ so that your gaze, that your, your eyes, the focus of your life's activities will not be you, but will be what it's supposed to be. How many of us go through life sort of accidentally letting life, letting the world, letting the evil one, letting the stresses and the pressures of our lives dictate what we see, how we perceive our lives, how we live our lives. How many of us go through life like that instead of having a revelation of Jesus Christ? What we don't need is better mechanisms or tools or methods for doing church. What we need is to get our noses in the Word and to lift up our gaze off of ourselves and to see God for who He really is. Which a whole bunch of us don't get to. When the same old humdrum existence dictates our vision. How we think, how we behave, how we speak, how we perceive the world comes from a revelation, a revealing of who God is. And we see it right here at the very beginning of Revelation. I mean, in the middle of our supposedly same old lives, the book of Revelation is a wake-up call. 
It's a wake-up call to lift up your eyes beyond the perceived realities that have become your realities because you let life happen to you. To lift up our eyes beyond the perceived realities of this world to see the cosmic spiritual forces that are truly at work. Because the word is telling us this is how it is. This is a peek into the spiritual battle that is raging for the souls of men and women and youth and children. Revelation is a peek into that kind of battle. And as such, it's an antidote to same old living. It's too easy to to do same old living. It's sort of like smelling salts to wake you up to the reality of the way life really is. Perhaps differently then you see it. I wrote this down in your notes. It's the first couple blanks there. I'm sorry, it's not blanks. I wrote this in your notes. It's the first thing there. The ESV study Bible tells us about a theme of Revelation, and it says that the Revelation unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. It shows it. It reveals it. That's what that word unveiled means. It unveils the unseen spiritual war in which the church is engaged. Because it becomes really easy in doing church and being a part of a Christian community and and living the Christian life to, to, to make it feel like, and our perceptions become this idea that what we just need in better church is better preachers, better ministers, Better methods of how we do things. Those help, but they only help if we see what's really at stake. And what's stake, what's at stake is that this life you are living in the flesh is a spiritual war. It's a spiritual battle. It's an unseen spiritual war, and that's what the church is called to do. That's what the church is called to be. That's what your life is supposed to be about. Engaging in spiritual, cosmic, eternal kinds of values and battles. And that's the reality from which our life is meant to be lived. And the urgency, the urgency of a life lived with God's mission and His purpose at its core comes from alertness and battle readiness that is spoken of at the end of verse 3. It says, blessed the one, blessed is the one who reads aloud the word. There's that reading thing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And then it says this. It introduces the whole, the whole theme of the book by saying, for the time is near. The time is near. Today I just want to mostly expand on the truth of this one verse. <laughs> that revelation at the beginning of it is calling out to be read by you. I, I think perhaps one of the number one things that we don't truly believe in America, in our churches, is we don't truly believe that the Word of God inherently has power to change lives. I don't think we really believe that. Because if we really believed that, we would be doing that. 
If we really believe that the, that the Word of God inherently has power to make life change happen so that my perception about what the world really is about would be changing, if we really believed that, and we didn't really believe that it means having better music, better preaching, better mechanics, better methods, better administrative tools, which is really what we believe, if we really believed that the Word of God inherently had power to change lives, we would be reading it. We have desires in this congregation. People come up to me all the time. I wish we were doing this. Why aren't we doing this? We should be doing this. Yes, 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 yes. I share those desires. But let's make sure we get first and foremost... But the blessings that come to us in the Christian life are from reading the Word of God itself, for it becoming a part of your heart. And that's what Revelation is crying out for at the beginning of the entire book. Read me. Read me. The Word of God, inherently, as we think about it and hear it, and it gets in our hearts, shapes us. And it counteracts an entirely humongous, beyond our best perceptions of it kind of battle that goes on. That's going on when most of what we read and take in and and the input of our lives is everything but the truth of God. I don't need to start quoting statistics about TV watching and... And, and time spent in other things, you, you know because you experience it, because you live it, because you tune in to tune out like we talked about last week. If you do not read this, our 37 weeks together in Revelation are going to be a waste of your time here for one hour every morning. And it's going to be totally incumbent upon me to, ma- to magically make happen something that is you plus the Spirit of God in the book Oh, sure, there's value for you being here. Of course there is. But if you're not going to read the Word, 37 weeks in Revelation are not going to to take fruit, to bear fruit in your lives like God intended for it to do. So I I just simply, I just want to give you a few tools. The rest of this is a little bit nerdy. It's a bit like going to seminary the rest of today uh, for our sermon here. Uh, But I just want to give you some tools. Because, as most of us know, the, the, the book of Revelation is extremely complex. I mean, I've read through it about four times now in preparation, and, and I'm behind in my reading. I did about 500-plus pages of, of outside reading about the book of Revelation, and I got a load more to go. And, and, and I am pretty sure that I'm not sure about everything in Revelation. And I bet some of you kind of feel that way as, as we approach this idea of, oh my, I'm going to read this whole book of Revelation. I mean, that's, it's, it's complex. And there are lots of things going on. So, so I just want to give you some tools uh, as we go through the study notes here. Uh, one of the things that we need to bear in mind is what kind of a letter it is, what kind of a book it is. And the next couple blanks in your study notes... Uh, are are something for you to know as we go go into reading it. It says, Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy. Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy. I'll explain those in just a second. Apocalyptic is A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P-T-I-C. A-P-O-C-A-L. 
Y-P-T-I-C, prophecy, P-R-O-P-H-E-C-Y, not S, prophecy. To prophesy is with an S. Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy that's written to churches in the form of a circular letter. Let's unpack those two big words there, apocalyptic and prophecy. Apocalyptic is just a fancy word that basically means what will take place at the end of history. If you're taking notes, apocalyptic, you can write a little arrow that says what will take place at the end of history. It literally means revelation. It's the first word in the book. Apocalypsis, Jesu Christu, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It means to unveil. It's like, it's like you, you couldn't see him, but now you can. And so when I, when I say reading the word is the best way to get your gaze off of the world and the evil one and the temptations of sin and the things that are affecting you spiritually, what I mean is apocalypsis. Unveil Jesus by the Word, because the Word was given from God to an angel, to Jesus, to John. Actually, God, Jesus, angel, John. And revealing Jesus to John is what helped John in a whole set of circumstances we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks here. So, Apocalypse is just a reveal or unveil, and, and a prophecy, for our purposes here, is just a foretelling of events. A foretelling of events. So an apocalyptic prophecy is a foretelling of what will take place at the end of history. And it's written to churches as a letter that would have been passed around. That's what we mean by a circular letter. There are only seven of them here in Revelation, uh, but it was probably passed around to many more. It was addressed to those particular seven, but it was passed around, read aloud, like it said at the beginning there of, Gen- of, uh, of Revelation. Um, it, was, it was read aloud, and those who heard it were blessed. So let's take a look next at the key themes. And these are just written down here um, for us to, to talk about here. Um, and, and I'll give you some scriptures there. Um, there are some others we could talk about, but, but for us, these eight themes are going to be key themes. Um, I just want to point those out to you here in the study notes. Uh, the first one is that through his death, Jesus has conquered Satan. In other words, through his sacrificial death on the cross, the work of Christ gaining salvation for us, through his death, Jesus has already conquered Satan. That's important for Revelation. It's not like all of a sudden Satan's going to be able to take over. Like Jesus is in trouble, and Revelation tells us how, like, Jesus finally wins. No, it tells us how Jesus finishes what he started. Through his death, Jesus has conquered Satan and has ransomed people from every nation to become a kingdom of priests. That's important. It's something we talked about in Genesis, becoming a kingdom of priests who gladly serve in God's presence. You can see it all over in Revelation. And there are some verses there. We won't look at all those because we don't have time. Number two, another key theme is that Jesus is present. He's among his church on earth. That's not just in Revelation. That's here today. This is a model for today, how he's present among us now. And, and if he wanted to list some things like to the church in Greenville, I have these things against you, he could because he's present among us. Jesus is present among his church on earth through the Holy Spirit, and he knows their trials, his triumphs, and their failures. 
Jesus is with us in this endeavor. Thirdly, world history, including its woes and disasters, is firmly in the control of Jesus, the victorious Lamb. There's a whole series of three chapters there, uh, two, two full chapters, five, six, seven, eight, three chapters. They talk about uh, how that works there from five through eight, one. The victorious Lamb, Jesus, is actually in control of history. It may not feel like that to us, but then in those kinds of circumstances, it's our perception. It's our perception. And that's not right. And so we need a revelation of Jesus, a top-down revelation, not a bottom-up kind of revelation. You see, we go through our lives with bottom-up theology, bottom-up revelation, bottom-up as if we have the perception and the reality. It comes from the top-down. It's a revelation both about Jesus and from Jesus. That's what the word of means. It's about him and it's from him. Next key theme here, number four there, is that God is restraining his wrath. He will come in his full outpouring of his wrath, but God is restraining his wrath in his enemy's efforts to destroy the church as he patiently gathers his people through the testimony of his suffering people. That's all over Revelation, as you can see in those verses there. Number five, present disasters, though limited in scope by God's restraint, are foreshadowing, this is sort of a contrast to number four, are foreshadowing and warning of escalating judgments to come. God has restrained his wrath, but it's not going to be restrained forever. God is, God is God of justice and mercy. And we're going to see what the justice looks like. We are big fans of mercy. <laughs> we're big fans of his mercy. But the other side of that same coin of salvation is his wrath, his justice. It cannot be otherwise in order for mercy to operate. And what we're going to see in Revelation quite a bit is that both mercy and justice are two sides of the same coin of salvation. And we may not understand it all. But those both sides, mercy and justice, grace and judgment... Both of those two sides of the coin of salvation end up glorifying God. That's a big part of what Revelation has to tell us. It's one of our main ideas for the entire series we'll be looking at. Number six, by maintaining their faithful testimony till death, believers in Jesus will conquer both the dragon and the beast. You'll come across a number of images and and visions of things like dragons and beasts and and prostitutes and pregnant women and and things like that. And you'll see these and and you'll have questions about them, which is good. Write down those questions. I want to encourage you in your reading to write down questions. In fact, it's part of the life group uh, homework this week uh, to read through and have some questions. So by maintaining their faithful testimony till death, number six here, believers in Jesus will conquer both the dragon and the beast. The martyr's victory now hidden will be manifest in their vindication at Christ's return. In other words, be encouraged that though life is hard, that there is struggle, that each one of us experiences what a broken world is like in our suffering. Be encouraged that you and I Faithful till death in Jesus will conquer. We are called more than conquerors in Romans, and that, that theme of being a conqueror is picked up here in Revelation in a number of places. There's lots of cool stuff. It's not just about, oh no, be scared of his outpouring. In fact, those who are conquerors needn't be. That's where I'll be coming from. There are people who think otherwise, but I think they're wrong. Number seven. 
Satan attacks the church's perseverance and purity through violent persecution, deceptive teaching, and affluence and sensual pleasure. That's, that's visualized a lot in the whole book of Revelation. Finally, number eight, at the end of the age, the church's opponents will intensify their persecution, but Jesus, the triumphant word of God, will defeat and destroy all his enemies, the old heaven and earth, stained by sin and suffering. The brokenness of this world will be replaced by a new heaven and earth. And the church will be presented as a bride in luminous purity to her husband, the Lamb. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. All tears will be wiped away. All suffering will be gone. All of that in the new heaven and the new earth is pictured here, is foreshadowed in the book of Revelation. Super cool stuff. Um, that, that gives us encouragement along the way. So just some key themes there as you're reading through. And, and there's one other thing I want to show you um, about ways to read Revelation. Um, I sort of already alluded to that next thing, our big idea for Revelation. Um, you can read that later. There are four ways to read Revelation. And I hesitated about putting this in because this gets into nerd, nerdy kinds of things that, uh, that, you know, they always tell you, don't go there because, you know, your people don't care about those things. But, but, but I think this is important for Revelation because it's so complex. There are so many things going on. Once you start to read Revelation through a couple times, you'll think, well, wait, wait, I, I thought we already talked about that here. Oh, we did. But, oh, okay, so, so does this happen after this or does this the same thing as this just pictured differently? And, and you'll have all these questions about what comes when and, and how they fit and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but, but these four ways to read Revelation... And I'll close after this for just a a little reminder of some things about Revelation. I'll close after this, but four ways to read Revelation that I think are helpful for us. And this is a common way to sort of break up these uh, ways of interpreting and reading Revelation. The first is the historicist view. And I've got this in your study notes there. This view, the historicist view, sees Revelation as a pre-written record of history from the time of the church all the way to the end of the world. And fulfillment is in progress now and has been unfolding for nearly 2,000 years. This view understands the literary order of visions to symbolize the chronological order of successive historical events that span the entire era from the church to the return of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, everything that happens in Revelation, you can point to something in history and say, oh, that pope, that was that. And the Roman Empire, that was that. And so in all those kinds of ways of viewing Revelation, you can point to uh, something as it, as it shows all of our church history uh, up to this point, according to that view. Now, the second one is called the Preterist view. Uh, this may be a new one for some of you. Uh, the Preterist view is uh, from a Latin word that means the thing that is past. And this view sees the fulfillment of prophecies as already having occurred in what is now the ancient past. In other words, long story short, everything in the whole book happened for uh, a few years after it was written. Uh, some of them think it happened until 70, AD 70, when the temple at Jerusalem fell. Now, this isn't as commonly held a view in our tradition, but lots and lots of good Bible-believing conservative Christians still believe this, and it's gaining some steam in some, some areas. Uh, it, it puts together very nicely uh, the book of Revelation as if it was written for that time period and everything that's in there, except sometimes the last couple chapters, has already happened. Now, that's not common from our experience 
Uh, it doesn't sound like the Left Behind series or uh, Hal Lindsey's books, if you're familiar with him. Um, but, but that's a common view. And I want to I just say at this point, all four of these are valid Christian views. You will hear people say, oh, no, 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 no. You cannot be a good Christian unless you believe in the futurist view because that's what the early church always held. Well, even that is far more debatable than anybody says it is. So I just, I just want to caution you, uh, try not to, to label people as liberals or non-Christians if they believe one of these views differently than you. And we'll talk about some things in some other chapters down the road where you'll think, well, of course this is how it is. And then I may say something where I'm saying, actually, I think something different. And you will think, He's liberal. You may think, he's way more conservative. You'll come across a couple things here and there. And, uh, and believe me, I'll have reasons for what I'll say down the road. Um, but, but, but do not get caught into making any one of these interpretations Orthodox Christianity. Because it's not. People believe any of these four views, and they all love Jesus. And I think people who believe these four views some of them differently than me, will be in heaven with me. So I just wanted to point that out as we're going along. Uh, the futurist view is perhaps one of the most common uh, recently. Uh, this approach says that the majority of the prophecies of Revelation have never yet been fulfilled and that they await future fulfillment. Uh, futurist interpreters usually apply almost everything after chapter 4 uh, to a brief period before the return of Christ. So they sort of say everything after chapter 4 is sort of smushed toward the end of time. And, you know, we may, we may be back here, but the end of time is happening here and everything that's in Revelation is future and has not yet happened. Um, a lot of uh, Left Behind series books or Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth first made it popular. A number of folks um, believe in the futurist view. And then finally there's the spiritual view. This approach uh, is also called the idealist or symbolic approach. Uh, it does not attempt to find individual fulfillments of the visions, but sees Revelation as a great drama depicting transcendent spiritual qualities and realities. In other words, everything has a spiritual principle about it that applies to us, that applied to them. Now, th- now the reality of it is most folks are something like the first three plus some of four in there as well. Some folks are only four, but uh, most of it is a a bit of a mix. So um, I I know that's a little bit complicated, but but I wanted to put those out there for you. Uh, Read through those a couple times before you get to Revelation so that when you get to a passage, you can say, okay, so a futurist thinks this hasn't yet happened. What does a futurist think about what this passage means? And then at that same passage, you could think, okay, maybe a preterist assumes it's already happened, perhaps even in John's day. How does that mean that they'll think about this passage? Because you'll come to lots of passages and have questions about their meaning. So as you read the book of Revelation this week, I want you to read it, I want you to read it as a wake-up call. A wake-up call to view the unseen spiritual war in which we are called to be engaged. As we said earlier, we've been lulled to sleep by the ordinariness of our lives. And in life, it's, it's often a sort of jolt 
to our ordinariness. It's a jolt to the system that wakes us up. It's things like September 11th, 2001, that remind us of the realities of life we don't easily admit. For example, that at a moment's notice, any one of our lives could be taken away from us. We know that intellectually, but do we live from that place? Do we live our lives with a kind of urgency that knows that Jesus could come back and end all of this existence, this side of heaven, before I'm done with my next sentence? Do we have the kind of urgency to proclaim the gospel to people who may not know him that realizes that at any given moment, everything we know as our existence could be radically changed? I think being ready to die is of far more importance than we think while we're going about our mundane, same old, seemingly mundane, day-to-day life. And Revelation is a wake-up to call to that, to that reality. And, and jolts like, like 9-11 remind us that, that, that preparedness, that being ready is of utmost importance. On September 11th, there were 19 terrorists, four planes, Two towers, one open field, and nearly 3,000 people dead. None of whom expected to not go home that day. Now, 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 what if you had known? Revelation speaks to us like this. What if you had known before 9-11? A piece of information that would have saved lives. What if your, your husband or your wife or your son, or your daughter, was going to be on one of those planes, and you knew that it was going to happen, you would do absolutely everything in your power to use that information to help your family, to help people, to escape that fiery destruction that you knew was coming. Can you imagine the passion you would have to make sure that 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 piece of information you knew would get to the right people who needed to know it? Can you imagine how forcefully, how passionately you you would be communicating that information to those who needed to know? Can you imagine how seriously you would have taken that? Because, friends, the truth of the matter is that the information we do have is exactly of that kind of consequence. And something is coming that is going to be immeasurably worse than 9-11. The judgment of God is coming. And I want to implore you to study God's Word with passion to learn what he has to say to us so that your life can become the kind of life that cares wholeheartedly about the heart of God's 
desire to communicate his truth to people who don't know him. Because it's in study of this word that we will be prepared for his coming judgment. Because, friends, there will be a day coming soon when God will not abide with sin. There will be a day coming soon when God's full glory and his full wrath will be made known in power. So read the word and be ready. Father in heaven, we are people who who are so easily distracted by the snares of the evil one. We are so easily people who live without the full weight of your glory as the place out of which we live and act and move and speak and work and parent and spend. Father, we ask that that we would read this revelation from and about Jesus Christ. That our eyes would be open 